Thanks for joining us for this episode of Coffee with Closers, where business leaders share insights on how to build businesses from the ground up and best practices for innovating in their industry. Hey, Dawe, I'm super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers. It's good to be here, Sam. Most certainly. Well, every entrepreneur has an interesting story of how they overcame obstacles to become an entrepreneur. I'm sure you have something very similar to share. So can you share with our audience a little bit about your journey as an entrepreneur? Yeah, sure. So uh, my journey as an entrepreneur really started, I think, when I was 11 years old. I, I was... Um, in the summer between my fifth and sixth grade year, and I remember my grandparents visiting me um, that summer from China. Uh, and four years before that, I came to the United States from China, so I hadn't seen them in in four years, and and I hadn't been back to China uh, at, at that time because uh, I didn't have my permanent residence here in the United States. So, uh, but it was during that summer when they um, just told me really heartbreaking stories about. Uh, the environmental degradation of my hometown and how polluted it was. And I remember as a kid being really, really heartbroken at those stories because those affected my my um, communities, my family from back home, and also affected my my country that I really loved um, and, and grew up in. Um, but even more so from being sort of sad and, and, and sort of lamenting over that, I felt this really righteous anger that sort of like bubbled within me. I didn't really know what that meant, but I knew I was like angry. I wanted to do something about it. So uh, it was then when I really kind of dreamed to be uh, an entrepreneur, uh, a startup founder. I didn't really know what that meant either, but I wanted to create big impact. I wanted to change the world. Um, and my parents thought, everyone thought I was crazy because, you know, when you grow up in an Asian household, it's like you go be a lawyer, a doctor, uh, you know, a scientist or, or whatever. There's only like four or five things you can be, right? Um, but when I was asked what I wanted to be, I, I said I wanted to change the world. I wanted to start a business. Uh, I wanted to um, create a lot of big impact so that one day I can go back and help the people in my country. Um, so that, of course, got kind of muffled. That passion really got muffled and kind of like the, the, the candlelight that was lit in that moment. Uh, as I got, as I grew older, got muffled by sort of societal expectations, um, familiar expectations, what society expected of me as a sort of Asian American male. Um, again, those things I named, right? You should be an engineer. You should be a doctor. You should go to business school. You should go to law school. You should do these things and get a stable job and provide for your family. And that is what your future is going to be. And um, so I came into college as a pre-med uh, neuroscience major in 2013, uh, went to Vanderbilt University. Um, and I well, I was so sure of it that I wrote my entire paper on getting into college at the, what do they call it? Like the common app uh, essay uh, on why I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> so, um, so the irony in that is it's funny looking back on it, but uh, I wanted to be a doctor and I realized really quickly within the first year, my freshman year, that I didn't, that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I was really, I was really lost with, um, in terms of like what I want to do with my career, 
because I had my eyes set on going to med school, going through pre-med for so many years uh, before that. Um, and it was during that time of uncertainty where I, I really leaned into my faith. I wasn't uh, a Christian yet at the time, but um, I really leaned into the little bit of faith that I had, um, the little bit of scripture that I knew. And, and I remember praying to God that um, for him to, to guide my path. And uh, ultimately received the answer. Not too long after that, uh, switched my career over to business, ended up studying economics, um, and ended up choosing that uh, as my major at Vanderbilt. And the next year, I, I met my co-founders when I was a sophomore at Vanderbilt. And we were just a group of guys that wanted to start stuff, uh, wanted to build cool apps. And uh, we were, gosh, 19, 20 years old. Some of us were 18. Uh, and we're just a, a group of really hungry guys that wanted to, to make a change in the world through technology. So that really rekindled my passion for entrepreneurship. Uh, when I met those guys, we started several businesses in college. All of them failed, of course. <laughs> and um, I ended up graduating Vanderbilt uh, in 2017 with no job. And I was uh, driving Lyft and Uber to pay for rent. Uh, I ended up moving back to Nashville. And it wasn't until the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, when I felt like it was God's calling for me to just really give it a, a good shot, like a, a full-time entrepreneurship opportunity kind of was just laid in front of me and uh, felt God calling me to do it full-time, um, give it a full-time shot. Uh, and in 2018, we started Alawa uh, that people know today. Um, it's been a little over four years. Uh, in the last four years, we've grown it from a zero revenue business to a seven figure revenue business. Uh, currently we're scaling up to uh, $10 million in revenue in the next year, year and a half. Um, and, uh, and yeah, kind of the, the, the rest is history. So that's awesome to hear. So where did the idea for Aloha came about? It seems like it's a mark. Um, that's like a double-sided marketplace for connecting, um, entrepreneurs who has an app or a web app idea that's trying to find, development resources uh, to find um, more reasonably priced or structured, I guess, right? Uh, resources across the globe. And it's a great way to actually impact economies outside of the United States as well, right? So where did the idea come about and, and uh, what exactly is this company? What, is, what do you guys do? Yeah, so the idea came about when we were building our own apps and um, we had people that eventually found out what we we're doing on Vanny's campus and they're like, hey, there's this group of students that know how to build and design apps. So they started asking us, hey, can you build and design our ideas and our apps? And at first we turned them down, uh, but eventually the, the money was too hard to turn down, right? right? Like a, a few thousand dollars was a lot of money to, to students who are super broke, <laughs> uh, student loans and all, and all that stuff. So we ended up taking up some projects as students and forming an LLC while we were in college, starting a business bank account and all that stuff, right? When we were still in college doing some work. And as the work grew, we saw that there was a huge problem uh, in in the startup space, specifically startups and small businesses, people wanting, needing software development, but had no ideas or any means to uh, find the right team, manage that team, pay that team out efficiently, hold that team accountable. So we saw that there was a huge problem uh, with these people uh, gaining access to the software team. So um, we really made it our mission to, to create a future where anyone can innovate freely, not just big businesses, but also small businesses and non-technical founders and early stage startup founders. And we really created a solution and a product that was initially tailored towards those people. 
helping those people innovate more freely, taking advantage of an outsourced market that was uh, lower cost, um, that had the same, uh, if not better quality than what they would get at three or four times the cost. Um, now, when you find something at lower cost, uh, you uh, you naturally it's naturally an inferior type of product. People think uh, so. There's a lot of friction that exists when you work uh, with those resources. So the true question that you should be asking is not who you work with, but rather how you work with those resources. And that's where we thought our competitors really lacked because there's there's ton of marketplaces, matchmakers out there like TopTal, Lemon.io, Gun.io, you name it. There's tons of competitors out there that do matchmaking and vetting the right resource for you. But what we believe here at Alloa is to solve the true issue of software development accessibility and solve the efficiency of the software development economy, we have to change the way in which uh, people work uh, with those resources, not just finding and matching, but how they work with those resources. Uh, So that's essentially how we came up with our solution of building a platform that has a project management tool and payment tool, and also leveraging data analytics, data insights uh, into projects to increase the success rate of software outsourcing with our highly vetted partners. Yeah, I wish I had uh, known you guys existed maybe like seven, 10 years ago, we built two of our own applications. So one of our platform is called ClickX, which is basically this this thing right here. I don't know if it's actually, um, so ClickX is actually, yeah. a, a, we built it as an internal uh, agency reporting platform that we ended up white labeling the platform, made it available for other agencies and now added on a lot of resources like training, uh, training and uh, coaching, and all sorts of other products onto it. So that was, you know, a homegrown technology. We had to hire our own CTOs and uh, and have had to get our own, you know, design team and development resources. And and we still have a distributed workforce across the globe that actually works on that application. But there was wow. no such uh, uh, platform like the one that you have, right? And in the early days, we didn't even know. And we were, you know, looking for people all over the web. And it's even yeah. hard to find. And, and what year was that? What year? Oh, uh, this is probably that? 2011, 2012. Wow. Um, so it's been, it's been a while. That's yeah. Awesome. yeah. And then we built that was our right own... when mobile development was really starting off, right? I mean, the first probably Ordesk. And I think, oh, wait, like oh, Orde- yeah, I think there was like Ordesk yeah. or something like that. That was one of the platforms that we, we used to use to find resources yeah. across the globe. <laughs> uh, I think that was acquired by, uh, uh, I think, um, what's the company today? I forgot the name of them, but uh, there's a company that acquired Odesk. Uh, yeah. I, could, I think it's Upwork. Um, so yeah, I think they rebranded yeah to Upwork. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah. So certainly, what you're describing, you know, because we didn't know the product lifecycle and figuring out, you know, like all the sprints and managing these people's re, you know resources and uh, having daily standups and you know keeping them accountable to their deliverables, right? Because these guys go away for a week and come back, nothing has really changed, you know. So. <laughs> So yeah. we certainly, I know the, 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 there is a need, especially like you said, non-technical founders who gets into an idea, uh, but they have no idea how to manage the resources. And especially if you're there across the globe in a different time zone, and now you have to you know, uh, make sure that they're productive and they produce what, they, what you paid them to do. You certainly need a, a much better management tool to be able to do that. So I see Definitely. the need for it. Definitely. And I think the main misconception of how to solve any economy, uh, much less the software development economy, but I think the software development economy in terms of how uh, vet, you know, vetted human capital, software human capital works with an in-house team is one of the most complex, uh, complex you know, economies out there in terms of how many pain points there are, how, many, how much friction points there are that exist between the outsourced software team and the in-house team. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of compare it with 
like let's say a Uber ride, which is a simple human capital. I used to be an Uber driver. There's only um, five to ten things that could go wrong with an Uber ride, right? Your your car's dirty, the driver's bad, uh, you know, the the passenger's rude to you, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you scale that human capital to a complex human capital like software engineering uh, or any other complex human capital like digital marketing or accounting or whatever, uh, you have much more higher uh, chances uh, to to fail and to have fires and to have things go wrong because that resource is doing a lot more things that a driver is doing. So how do we sort of create that um, efficiency and, and that technological platform to be able to bring um, uh, a solution where anyone in any part of the world is able to seamlessly find, manage, work, pay, audit, hold accountable any other software development team, uh, highly vetted software development team. Uh, and the misconception, I think, is it's it's not a vertical issue; it's a horizontal issue, uh, meaning that most people solve just one vertical, and they think that that eliminates the problem. But the actual issue in the economy is a horizontal issue, meaning that there's multiple verticals that needs to be solved. Um, simultaneously in order to eliminate all of the issues that occur in the economy uh, in that specific sector horizontally. Mm-hmm. So not just finding and vetting, but also onboarding, management, payment efficiency, accountability, so on and so forth. So the, talk to me a little bit about the vetting process, because obviously, all, you know, you're somebody's across the globe on the other side of the you know, computer claiming that they can do PHP development or they know how to do Ruby on rail or whatever those things are. Right. And you're, you have no way to verify it because you're not a technical founder. You don't know how to go verify their test their code or do any of that stuff. Like, how are you guys doing a better job of assessing their ability to deliver on the promise that these guys are making on the other side? Yeah, that's a really great question. So uh, we, we break it down into several main steps uh, as part of our vetting process. And what's more important is not the initial vetting, but also the continuous vetting that we do. Mm-hmm. And we'll sort of dissect what continuous vetting really means. But starting out with the initial vetting, uh, we do the basic checks of uh, website, UI, UX design, past case studies, several US-based references that we try to call on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a whole team uh, that sort of does this, uh, our, our CEO, our operations team that really vets uh, partners to be on our platform. So after we check those things, we do certain code snippet reviews, have them send over code snippet reviews uh, in terms of what are the actual code that they've written, that they say that they can do, uh, that their resources claim that they can do. Uh, What is their team composition? What does their upper management look like? We sort of do multiple rounds of interviews with the developers, project managers, and um, and upper management. So something that we vet for personally is not only the quality of work, but also company culture, right? Do their ethics align with our ethics? Uh, we have very, very high ethics here at Alibaba. We run um, our company with complete transparency and honesty. We put people first. Um, and when most companies say that, they mean their employees or their partners or their clients. We also mean our competitors. And we also mean our partners. We, we put people first, right? We don't, we're not biased against what type of people uh, we put people first. So do they align with those values of putting people first, being honest and being transparent uh, in all those things and quality over quantity um, type of um, type of core values and, and stuff like that. So uh, the last part is, you know, uh, onboarding them to our platform and uh, getting multiple lead developers and project managers to take our uh, Alibaba certification exam, which is a multi-part exam on how to interact with our clients, how to use our platform correctly, what to do in certain situations and stuff like that. And we mm-hmm. have to see them uh, pass, have a pass rate score, uh, passing score on that. 
um, to be able to officially be onboarded uh, as an Alamo partner. Now, after they're onboarded as an Alamo partner, um, we've actually flown to a lot of these countries to visit our partners. We, we only have nine global partners that's been vetted over 10,000 agencies overseas. So it's like a very, very uh, stringent vetting process that is able to distill those 10,000 agencies down to our nine current partners in India, Eastern Europe, and South America. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's the vetting part. And then the continuous vetting part is where our audits and our process really comes in to play. So how do we continually keep these firms performing and on their toes uh, is they have to follow our process, development process, in terms of how we want them to commit code, use pull requests. I'm talking technical terms here, uh, but a lot of the, the technical development processes, um, you don't have a good development team or good development uh, results without good process, no matter how good the resources, without good process being enforced on them, you're not going to have a good product being delivered and delivered on time. So we are very proactive about auditing that every two weeks, creating a process around that strategies around what to audit for, how to audit them. Uh, and we give them a sort of audit score, composite audit score. And they have to see, we have to see that audit score increase or maintain the same quarter to quarter uh, over time um, for them to remain in the partner network. Understood. So obviously, this is an interesting, you know, journey that you've been on, right? Medical school student uh, went down to uh, ended up. Well, I never made it into med school. Yeah, (laughs) I was never smart enough for that. (laughs) I got weeded out on my first year. (laughs) And then you obviously ended up in economics, and then uh, obviously started this uh, this company with four, four other. Uh, co-founders uh, that you met in college days, and so essentially you you know you've built this company in the last what four years I think it's uh, you guys have been around for about four years. Um, so what are some core lessons you've learned in the process of building this company? Oh gosh, um, there's so many. Um, I think the biggest thing that we've learned is you want to obsess over the problem and not the solution to the problem. Uh, and I can preach that all day. I can go hours and hours on what that means. But uh, going back to our college days when we were building uh, unsuccessful businesses, businesses that never took off, um, we were obsessed with our solution. We were like, our product is so good. There's no product like our product. Um, but we weren't solving actual problems because we weren't tuned into the needs of the market and the pain points of the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're obsessed in solving that one problem. Uh, obviously, that one problem have have multiple subsets of problem, um, but uh, yeah, sort of obsessing over the problem uh, and not the solution. And as a result, we were able to create a solution that is exactly tailored uh, towards uh, and fully resonates with the customer segment that we are uh, engaging with. Mm. And obviously, now you're you know you're in a leadership role. You're a co-founder. You're having to you know play multiple roles. Uh, you need to kind of grow into the role, right? Like this is a, a core function uh, out of college. You built this company and grew to like you're on track to be a $10 million company in probably in less than a year from what we're talking here, right? So there's a lot of things that you have to do very efficiently. So what are some of the things that you're doing to really, really grow in your leadership skills and also to, to develop yourself personally? One of the biggest things that our company does internally is we do sort of personal leadership development as part of our KPIs, right? So whenever I have my one-on-one with my CEO, uh, part of my KPIs, my key performance indicators uh, per week is leadership development, sales leadership development, right? And and uh, part of that is sort of reading books on uh, negotiation or sales training or, or whatever I want to entertain myself with. There's really not a curriculum that, you know, he holds me to. He's like, hey, whatever you're interested in, however you want to develop yourself, 
you have to take the initiative to watch the right YouTube videos, uh, go through the right courses or read the right books to sort of develop that. Um, all he holds me accountable to is hitting that KPI every week. It's not a big KPI. We're all really busy people, right? Doing our own things and calls and every week, but it's just sort of like half a chapter or one chapter a week. And we sort of discuss that back and forth. It's like, hey, what did you learn this week? If you did read that one chapter, like what did you learn from that one chapter? And that holds me accountable um, to never be complacent and always keeping me on my toes to learn new things, uh, read a new chapter every week about something new and sort of discuss that uh, with my co-founders. Um, the second part is, uh, we discussed this a bit earlier, is, is my faith and how that sort of plays in to my leadership style. You know, as a follower of Jesus, I believe um, strongly that we are here to uh, speak life into people and speak encouragement into people um, and call people up uh, rather than um, sort of speaking down to them. Uh, I know there's there's a Bible verse in James, uh, the book of James, I believe, that says your tongue has the li- uh, the power of life or death. Uh, and I always want to choose life over death when I'm speaking to uh, the, the people that I'm managing. I want to be able to call them up uh, and challenge them uh, to that standard uh, and never sort of uh, be cutthroat and talk down on them and sort of suck all the life. Uh, out of them uh, after we 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 meet. Uh, I know some of my friends who work for uh, certain companies. I'm not going to name the name of, but like, you know, they they meet with their managers and they their career starts spiraling afterwards because they can't take the the criticism. Uh, maybe partially that's on our generation of being a little little softer, a little you know we don't take criticism as well. But also the certain leadership styles that thrived in the 1980s and 90s, the, being a hard ass boss. Uh, that is really hard on your employees um, doesn't really work uh, in our generation. Um, so sort of tailoring that and really calling people up, encouraging people, is sort of that. That's more of my style of, mm-hmm. um, of of management. I'm just a little curious because I know most of you guys came out of college and uh, co-founded this company. I'm assuming most of you are in kind of the same age. So how is that dynamic? I'm actually uh, the oldest. Uh, <laughs> They're all that? younger than me. So how's the dynamics in terms of like hey, reporting to a guy who's younger than you, but he's also your CEO and then having having that level of respect for his position, right, in the company, even though you guys are all co-founders as well? Yeah, it's what, you know, our, our CEO is, he's like a year and a half younger than me. Our youngest co-founder is, I do believe he's 24 or 25. Uh, we're all around the same age, uh, approximately. So, you know, when we're in the same room, um, we're we're full, full fully remote team by the way. So every every six months or so, we have a team retreat to a different city, and we all meet together. Um, it, it doesn't really feel like there's an age difference. Like we're all very very mature people. Um, you know, more so than the typical um, age bracket that we're in. Um, and I just have just the the utmost respect for for our CEO, and he's such a a selfless leader, uh, and that's something that we can talk about as well as like being selfless and um, laying your life down for the sake of those that you lead and that you serve. And, and I think a lot of people have a misconception of leadership as in uh, being the boss, telling people what to do, uh, telling people to do things that you don't want to do, uh, getting your intern to fetch coffee for you. <laughs> but most people have a misconception of, of leadership like that. But I think true leadership at the very at the very core is is uh, service. The selflessness is dying to yourself so that other people around you can thrive. 
um, laying your desires down, your bonus, your condition. Um, and he and he does that. You know, he, he does that in such a incredible way. We all look up to him. He's kind of he's not the oldest in that company. He's in the middle, uh, probably on the younger end. But he's just. Uh, yeah, he commands respect. He commands attention in a way that um, very few founders I've met uh, ever ever is able to. And and we worked with over 300 different founders across 40 plus different industries. I've met, I speak with founders, work with founders day in and day out. Um, and there's uh, really no one as humble as this guy. I know I'm really hyping him up, but really I, I can't hype him up enough. He's, he's incredible. Yeah. I think, I think usually as an entrepreneur, right, sometimes you feel like you have to own up to the role and, you know, command, you know, command people to do certain things. And, you know, especially you're, you know, if you're raising capital or trying to build a team and doing all those things and there's a lot of pressure on them and like you said i think it is you have to choose to have that leadership style of you know a servant leadership right where you're choosing yes. to be a servant more than uh being served by others and then if you lead yes. that way others would follow and they would lead um in your you know they will kind of follow your example uh and build more yes. leaders that are like you uh like you as well Yes. And for the audience that's listening, I think it's it's two ways to tackle serving leadership. Like one way you can you can do behavior modification and read a bunch of books and never look inwardly into your heart. Right? That's 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 behavior modification. That's the outside in. But I want to challenge people to think about the inside out type of transformation. Um, not not being too religious, here, but like think about spiritually, psychologically who you are as a person. Do you know yourself? Well, are you assured? Do you have insecurities? What are you insecure about? Do you have peace? Do you have joy, right? And it's out of that place of abundance rather than the place of deficit, are you able to pour in that encouragement, that servant leadership out to the people that you lead, right? Um, if you're not fixed on the inside, if you never look inward and reflect about the person that you are and you have a bunch of insecurities and you're depressed and you're anxious about certain things all the time, um, your leadership style is going to reflect that and it's going to drive straight into the people that you lead and that energy is going to carry out into your whole team so it's all about the transformation of your heart transformation of the inner soul spiritual like whatever you guys believe in uh you know i i, I truly believe that in their innerly you need to be transformed um in order to sort of really operate from that place of abundance because if you're operating on the place of deficit you're always having that take mentality I'm going to take from my employees. They're, they're serving me. They're going to treat me a certain way. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's the opposite. It's the exact opposite of that. Yeah. And I think, you know, you could be manipulative as well, right? If you're, if all you're trying to do is to get others to do what you want them to do, then you're just manipulating them uh, to kind of follow you. Um, but I think when you're, de when you're, when you're coming out of genuine care for that person and values them and, and give dignity to their, their human, you know, humanness, right. And then you're, basically serving them and providing them an opportunity to, you know, grow into their, their God, you know, God given function in the world. Um, that definitely plays a part um, in how well they perform as an employee as well. Definitely. So absolutely. I, absolutely. How has your approach on sales and marketing evolved? Obviously when you started your company, you know, and now you're, you know, you're playing this uh, sales role, right. And building and driving revenue and things of that nature. So how has your approach on that changed over the years after you've founded a company of your own? Yeah, I, I always view uh, sales marketing as totally, totally different things. Um, so we don't have a marketing lead. We don't have a marketing team. Uh, we always joke that our whole team is a marketing team. So we, we kind of like divide and conquer marketing. 
uh, and that's worked for us uh, up until now. And uh, you know, obviously, we're we'll be we'll eventually need to be hiring a, a marketing lead soon and someone to take over that. Um, but right now, it's sort of a distributed responsibility. Uh, for the first two years that we were operating in business, we didn't have any marketing. Uh, marketing was completely crap. It was non-existent. There was no Google ads, no sponsorships, no blogs, um, no no this and that. Uh, we didn't do any podcasts or anything like that. No no content creation. Uh, and it was all just word of mouth. Uh, so initially, it was very sales heavy. Um, it was all business development, sales, cold emails, cold outreach, cold calls, and all those things. Um, I think uh, when we got into year three back in 2020 was really when we turned on the knob, uh, the, the switch uh, of marketing and started doing a lot of different uh, things marketing-wise, like social media, content creation, blogging, SEO, and all those things, Google ads, all those things, uh, which has yielded a tremendous return for us. Um, and at the same time, I think sales has uh, evolved to be a little bit more inbound. Uh, so instead of us doing a lot of outreach, it's been people sort of coming to us and then we engage with the leads that come to us uh, that are already sort of warmed up and, and sort of know our brand or have read a content on Forbes that were published by us and something like that. Um, and then we engage with that lead and sort of identify their needs and, and, and then the rest is sort of sales, you know, sales one-on-one from there. So It's crazy how, you know, once you've uh, tasted it, you'll never go back to the old way of doing things, right? Because anyone who doesn't believe in the inbound methodology, it's like, you know, they're on the fence, like, oh, I don't know how this is going to work. It doesn't work. But if you've been on the other side, the amount of power that you have, right? Not, not in a bad way. I'm talking about when a prospect comes to you and they recognize you as a leader, in providing whatever product or service that you provide, then they perceive you from a different perspective. And you're not on the same level with the alternatives that they may have in the marketplace, right? That you They perceive you in a completely different way and you have a completely different sort of a sales conversations that you have. But when you knock on doors and go ask people, would you like to do business with me? You don't have a lot of control. Like you're at the mercy of that buyer mm -hmm. most of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not saying like it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I do believe that it kind of changes the paradigm completely from a uh, from the sales and marketing yeah, side. Um, and to add on to that, when you're when you're uh, talking about sort of knocking on people's doors or like cold email and cold outreach, uh, to loop in a little bit more technical term into it, like your sales cycle has to align with their sales cycle just when you make that call or or around that time when you make that call, right? And the chances of that are really really low. Um, not saying that I mean we we had tremendous business doing cold outreach and cold emails. I'm not saying that it's it doesn't work and it's bad, but um, definitely the efficiency. When you talk about like the efficiency of your sales team and what they can be spending their time doing, uh, the efficiency is a lot lower um, than than sort of that that inbound. If you can build that inbound growth engine where it can yield leads to you, uh, and all you have to do is have your sales team engage with those warm leads that are ready to buy. Because mm -hmm. when the leads are reaching out on our site, they fill out a form and they submit that form. They're, they're ready to buy, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, like going back to what you said, inbound is so powerful if you can create that growth engine to uh, to create those inbound leads flowing for your most, business. Most certainly, and I think the the success of an outbound strategy is mostly on the volume game and you know you know scaling personalization at scale, right? Like. That's where, like you said, how, how on earth are you going to be able to align yourself to the buyer's timing? The only way to do it is just do it at a higher volume. Hopefully, somebody who's getting the email was in the pain and needed a help. And they're like, ah, yeah, maybe I should engage this guy in a conversation. Whereas on the yeah. other side, 
you're doing all the education more at you know marketing at scale right basically it's marketing is sales at scale uh right essentially you're teaching the market educating the market you know informing them about the pain that they may already they may not even recognize that, that they have this problem right like they they know they have to get program you know developers they might have gone to upwork like we did in the early days and try to hire people and try to do it on their own but they haven't figured out well there's an efficient way i can use this technology a platform where i can find people vet them so already pre-vetted them manage them more efficiently pay for those guys and now also measure their performance and and keep them accountable do all of this much more efficiently and i can do this you know and i don't have to pull my hair then if they're educated <laughs> about it right when they come to you like you said they're much more buyer ready because they've already kind of been informed yeah definitely and, and for and for the audience is like looking to do outbound you have to also kind of analyze like how big that market is like if you're doing b2c outbound you have infinite amounts of prospects right um for us it was it was really different because our target market was early stage startups mid-stage startups that were uh bootstrapping or uh funded with pre-seed funding or maybe gone to a seed round funding um that pool in the united states is very very limited i mean there was probably a few thousand startups if that mm -hmm. right um so uh you know again it worked wonders for us early in the business um but at a certain point you definitely hit that ceiling in our industry uh, but you definitely have to assess what type of industry. If you're selling insurance, or you know, everyone needs insurance, right? Mm -hmm. So your market is just infinite. You're not gonna you're gonna spend ten lifetimes calling, cold calling all these things, and you still won't run out of people. Right? Yeah. And, uh, so I think it also depends on the industry. And the difficulty of yours yours is somebody could have a startup idea and they need your help, but they don't even have a business or a brand name or a website. Right. Haven't really so you can't made it public. <laughs> Correct. So yeah. that that makes it even harder. So. I think you have an even better opportunity by educating them like what to do if you had a product idea and you're trying to go to market, you know, seven things you haven't considered if you're going to start up a SaaS product, right? Like, well, you, before you even create a product, you need to have, you know, product engineers who understand the product and you needed to know what the, the product UI should look like and the, the customer journey and the story and all the stuff, right? You educate them all about their problem. They're like, man, I don't want to go do this on my own. Let me use these guys. And they already know the problem. They can probably help me find the you know a vendor that already been vetted and have done this a hundred times saves me a lot of you know lost time because time is money at the end of the day as well right especially with these startup early stage companies they have to get to market go to market really really fast improve their product market fit before they can raise more cash to go scale up and do what they need to do so it's, a, it's definitely a thing so obviously as a founder right you have one thing you don't have enough of is time so are there any productivity hack that you have in terms of staying, you know, productive and getting things done? And how do you how do you make sure that you're you're being most efficient? Most of the sales team time is really optimized when we are talking to people and engaging with people, whether it's like networking calls or business development calls or actually actual client sales calls that we're in. So when we're not on calls, we're actually not utilizing it to our full extent. Now our product team is completely different. When they're on calls they're wasting their time, not wasting their time, but like they're using their time less efficiently when they're not on call, then they're coding and they're creating process and they're creating tools for a platform. Uh, that's when they maximize their time. Um, so I think it really depends on your role and the focus of your role. Um, I think the time management aspect has to center around KPIs. I mean, for, for those of you guys who don't have, you guys need to implement KPIs. It's, it's, it's what is, what's your North stars on the, uh, is how you determine your North Star and where you're going uh, from week to week and how you keep yourself on track and how you manage your time should be revolving around those KPIs. So for example, like my KPIs were like, 
I um, a lot of it is weighed towards uh, business development, finding referral partners, and closing the uh, amount of deals, uh, and leading my sales team to close X amount of deals for that quarter. And that's my core KPI. So most of my time should be centered around that. And there's other miscellaneous things like I talked about earlier, like sales training. Or for me, I'm, I'm also uh, in charge of managing our sales playbook and updating our process and updating our documentation on uh, for future sales people when they get onboarded, they can read that documentation on our notion board and stuff like that and be able to follow our sales process correctly. So all those are my responsibilities, but those are secondary and tertiary to the main thing, which is uh, closing sales volume, X amount of sales volume for that quarter. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think uh, my schedule is, is surrounded around that. And then whenever I do want to uh, perform or, or execute my, I call it high leverage activities. Uh, I'm sure some, some of the people in the audience kind of understand what that means, but it's sort of important tasks, but not the urgent tasks. Uh, I sort of block out that time in my calendar, um, to make sure that no one disturbs me, maybe play some classical music in my room. Um, and just make sure that I turn all the notifications off to work on those high leverage activities. Uh, like what I said about the playbook or, or reading sales development material. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I have an uninterrupted uh, hour or two hours to be able to do that where no one can contact me. No one can hit me up. It's on my calendar. So, so don't put a call there. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and I think that's, that's important. And, and uh, there's a thing, there's a thing that many of you guys are familiar with called tyranny of the urgent. Uh, or as my COO like to call it, the curse of the urgent. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, you're constantly being driven by what's the most urgent task that you feel to address what's important and not urgent. There are some tasks that are both important and urgent, um, but I think a lot of us, we easily, I, I fall into the trap of just being driven by urgent things, replying to emails, uh, you know, responding to so-and-so, calling so-and-so, right? And those are all good things, but ultimately, those things you're reacting to your to your sense of urgency rather than being proactive uh, in sort of developing yourself and developing yourself and uh, developing future process and stuff like that. Awesome, yeah. I mean, those are some really good principles because I know we all, like you said, like get get caught up in the urgent and uh, put aside the most important things, in which the most important things are probably going to get you away from having to deal with the urgent in the future as well, right? So yeah. it's a it's a vicious cycle, oftentimes uh, as entrepreneurs. Definitely. Definitely. And I hate and I hate doing the things that I do that doesn't involve people. I, I love people. I was built for this. Right. I, I was built to just talk to people and encourage people and, and love on people <laughs> and figure out what they need and, and sell them what they need. Um, and I, I hate the times where I have to sit alone in my room and not talk to anyone for an hour or two. That drives me crazy. Right. But you have to do it and for the sake of your business. You have to do it. And uh, I'm lucky I have co-founders and partners that hold me accountable to that. They're like, hey, Dawa, you haven't been doing this for the last few weeks. Like, your KPI is dropping, man. Like, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta pick that up. We need this material from you uh, for the next hire or something like that. So that that really sort of gets my morale back up and really uh, gets me driven to complete those boring tasks uh, <laughs> on on my on my list. I know. Oftentimes, the procrastination is because we don't enjoy whatever that task is, and we we try to put aside, you know, that the to do something else instead. I would do like so many other things before I start doing those high leverage tasks. My house starts getting clean. You know, I would just like throw out the trash. I was washing the dishes. So I was like, man, what else can I do to like 
not do these other things. Exactly. I'm I'm, I'm sure you can resonate. I'm really guilty of that myself. So no, no excuses there. So one final question that I have is knowing what you know today, what advice would you give your younger self? Uh, what advice would I give to my younger self? Um, outside of buying Bitcoin (laughs) (laughs) when it was really, when it was really cheap. Uh, I, I think about that all the time. Um, don't be too hard on yourself. Be forgiving of yourself. Uh, I'm really hard on myself. Uh, my, my, my wife always tells me, like, stop being so hard on yourself. Like, you're, you're amazing. You're incredible. Like, affirm yourself. Like, know who you are. And she sees me that way. Sometimes I, most of the times I don't see myself that way. But I'm glad I have uh, an incredible wife that, uh, that loves me in that way, uh, that encourages me every day. Uh, and, and it's true. It's like behind every great man is an even greater woman. And, and she's incredible. Um, so, uh, yeah, just being less hard on myself, uh, be more forgiving and embrace failure. That's the most important thing is, uh, that school doesn't teach you that, um, um, embrace failure as an opportunity to grow as an opportunity to learn. Uh, failure is not the end of the road. It's just the beginning of the road. And once you see failure, every single failure as an open door, um, you're you're definitely going to get somewhere in life. Awesome word to end our conversation. I certainly enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much for sparing this time with me. Yeah, really enjoyed it, Samuel. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.